Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 79, the one about the three C's rule, the voice of the customer, celebrating social media success, and the fifth element. Let's get on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to keep you up to date with the latest news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. And as always, my co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio Video Podcast. Please welcome, all the way from France, (laughs) Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much. I say this all the time because it's true. The highlight of my week is spent time with the man who's also on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the marketing fans podcast and the host of the incredible Rod's Vlog video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, fantastic, Pascal. Great to be back. Great to be back. And I know that you're settling in in France. I know the weather's much better than it is here (laughs) in the United Kingdom. And I know that I'll probably say that every week that we record this show. Uh, We are going to be talking today, later on in the film marketing section, about a film called The Fifth Element. Now, Pascal, I have an admission to make. I thought I'd seen this film. Okay. But as always, I do try to re-watch films before we do the um, film marketing segment. Watched it last night, and I realized that I hadn't seen it before. I didn't know people like you existed, to be honest with you. <laughs> but not incredibly, Roger, this year we are celebrating the 25th anniversary of The Fifth Element, and we are expecting around the globe some special screenings of this masterpiece from Luc Besson. So lots to look forward to, but we've got news, we've got content, we've got marketing tech and apps to get through. So Pascal, shall we start, as always, with In The News? Well, Roger, we begin with the wonderful news that Cuthbert the Caterpillar is back. The cake, <laughs> which saw all the into a legal battle with the MNFs over lookalike Colin, will return to the stalls after both sides were happy with the outcome of the court case. KitKat has launched its latest iteration of its famous Have a Break brand positioning by encouraging social media users to Blink Break. The Blink Break is an online staring contest which uses AI to recognise a face and detect blinking. Well, rapid grocery delivery company Gorillas is launching its own private label brands in a bid to reach profitability. Now, these brands will offer around 50 products in the UK, Germany, France and the Netherlands. A new campaign from Hotels.com aims to redefine the travel brand as a hotel matchmaker rather than a directory. Find Your Perfect Somewhere is the debut spot from new creative agency Wield and Kennedy Portland and emphasises how the brand helps match all travellers to their perfect destination. Where Burger King Whopper Burgers can be seen flying into people's garden fire pits in recent ad spots. The Whopper to a Flame campaign has been created to show off the Whopper's flame grill taste, according to Soko Nunez, Brands and Comms Director at Burger King UK. Mark Zuckerberg recently announced via his Facebook page the launch of Crater, which is spelled C R A Y T A. The social world and game building environment which is taking meta one step closer to well the metaverse well pretamange is shifting its strategy away from targeting london city workers with a new brand purpose to make every day a little bit brighter and the new brand tagline brett making every day and as well as a refreshed identity 
B2B marketers in the UK have the lowest confidence when it comes to their company's ability to produce creative campaigns. In fact, it's the lowest figure in 13 countries. Now, I'm sure you spotted something here, Pascal, with all of these news items, or most of these news items, some of which are rebrands or responses to, I suppose, the new world order that we find ourselves in. So pret a effectively re-strategizing itself to compensate for the fact that there aren't as many workers piling into London every day and wanting to buy sandwiches from them at lunchtime. And Hotels.com effectively rebranding themselves to be less of a hotel directory and more of a sort of almost like a dating app for people looking for hotels. Similarly with uh, with with KitKat, so this is a natural thing to expect after after such a massive social upheaval caused by the pandemic, don't you think? Absolutely. And what is interesting, this is now the third iteration of in the news where we're seeing the brands working their way through the four seven Ps, depending which way you want to look at it. You know, we'll be looking at price recently. We'll be looking at product, and now we're looking at a promotion. Mm-hmm. And what I will say, it feels and looks as though this is actually taking place swiftly yeah. compared to maybe a few decades ago. Yeah, absolutely. And. I always said that the pandemic should be an opportunity to reposition not only brands, but actually reposition the way that society works. Um, And, you know, homeworking is here to stay. But there are some people saying, no, 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 we should get back to everybody piling into London every day on tubes and on trains and going back to the way it was. And and it's, it's good to see some companies are embracing change and are moving on. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I thought that uh, when you do the research for in the news is because we always approach lunchtime. You do so because it's all food related from you <laughs> know, the, uh, the, cut, but the caterpillar to Kit Kat to or all those things. But jesting aside, um, the, the last item you mentioned, this idea of the confidence in B2B marketers mm-hmm. around creativity. Mm-hmm. I do believe that there is a lesson in there about, you know, B2B looking at the world of B2C for inspiration, mm. but also vice versa, because I know and I have customers who are, you could argue, in the B2C environment who always envy a B2B thinking, oh, it must be so much easier to market a service. I say, well, you want to be talking to my customers. Yeah, it's a weird one, this, and maybe it's actually something we should talk about in a little bit more detail, maybe in a future episode of Two Geeks in the Marketing Podcast, Pascal. This whole idea that B2B always seems to be harder and less creative and less different than B2C marketing. And, and I've never understood why there should really be a major difference. I mean, it's still trying to meet the need of a customer it's just that the customer is another company okay you might get into the the age-old argument of having to use more complicated language or jargon and that sort of thing but ultimately you've still got somebody who's got a need somebody who has got a problem that needs to be solved by whatever product or service you're offering and then you've got to price it and promote it to that pe- that that company it's not that much different than traditionally marketing to a customer. So I don't know why a lot of people make such a great big deal out of it. Uh, neither do I. So I think you're right. That'd be fascinating to observe it and explore it, maybe through a content spotlight or another item. I just wanted to quickly, if you'll allow me, um, ask your reaction, because you are the traveler 
yeah. you know, amongst in, in our little duo here. And I found fascinating the hotels.com, who are also advertising, interestingly, in France, this idea of they don't want to be seen as a directory. It's very, very interesting, Pascal, because um, I've got a L London trip coming up um, in a couple of weeks' time, first night away for quite a long time, and I'm actually struggling to find a decent hotel, which is actually decently priced. I mean, honestly, to say that people aren't piling back into London seems to be completely at odds with the price that I seem to be being quoted for even quite you know low um, standard hotels i mean some of the ibis hotels the basic ibis hotels are coming in at like 350 pounds and i'm not prepared to pay 350 pounds to stay in london for a night um it's uh, and it's funny when i was doing the research for my hotel rooms i used the usual things like booking.com which we've talked about on the show uh the the um last minute uh, dot com and all of that hotels isn't really one that i think of um so maybe that's why they're doing this repositioning and trying to stand out from the hotel directories and do something a little bit different whether this whole find your perfect somewhere this whole sort of matchmaking thing will actually work i don't know but at least it's drawn my attention to hotels.com whereas before i wasn't actually looking at them no, absolutely. Just to close very, very quickly, um, we are here to provide advice, service and information. And I think we should find out once and for all, which cake is better, Cuthbert or Colin. <laughs> so would you be happy to, you know, do a, a test? So we're going to go to Aldi to buy Cuthbert and MNS to buy Colin and we'll do a live test one day. We'll do a live test. Maybe that should be our special <laughs> for episode 80, Cuthbert the Caterpillar and Colin the Caterpillar. I was delighted to see those, the, 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 the caterpillars were back and yes you did notice the the thing that i hadn't noticed that was so many food related um, news items here i was just focusing focusing on the rebranding but of course it's very interesting that they were all about food i think my tummy must have been trying to tell me something as i was doing that research oh pascal thanks for your reactions to the news items this week let's move on now and focus on something specific shall we move on to the content spotlights And in this part of the show, Pascal and I bring to the table an item of content. It could be an article, could be a podcast, could be a video, and we go into it in quite a bit of detail. So, Pascal, what have you got for me this week? Well, I've got something for you. I mean, I hope that obviously listeners will not mind, but I was thinking of you when I spotted this article from cmsy.com. The title, The Voice of the Customer. What yeah. is it and why does it matter for customer experience by Scott Clark? So a bit of introductions for all of you. cmsy.com is actually a website that I read a lot, but I don't think that I've shared anything of theirs yet on Two Gigs of Marketing podcast. Think of it as a publishing platform that is there to uh, keep professionals informed who are involved in online customer experience, digital workplace technologies, and the role of AI amongst all this. And Scott Clark, um, I would say, is a specialist in web technologies, decades of experience in things like SEO and internet security and a great sense of humor, judging by his biography, by the way, on cnsy.com. And this was perfect timing because you and I are both on this show and off air, should shall we say, 
We talk about customers all the time and customer experience and this side of being informed or decision being formed by the understanding where the customer's wants and needs are. So what um, Scott Clark is doing here, it's almost like a rallying call for all of us to spend more time in understanding the customer. And to use your phrase, Roger, in this obsessive desire to understand the customers really, really well. And the voice of the customer, as you see from the article, is a phrase I was going quite some time ago. And this article is perfect. It goes into so much details. And I'm going to really tease you to go then and click on the link in the show notes to read it much, much later. But to begin with, why would you bother with a voice of the customer campaign if you need to be reminded? Well, the benefits are that you will be more effective in, of course, in your marketing, sales, and customer service uh, campaigns. You will be able to improve vastly products and services and will, as a result, increase customer retention rates. According to Scott and his research, which also refers to a lot of um, kind of research out there, there are three steps to the voice of the customer process. Number one, of course, gathering customer feedback, and he'll give you a big list of how to go about it. Number two, you must analyze the data, but not just for the sake of analyzing the data, you've got to take actions. And I'm going to give you some examples in a moment. But for me, the highlight and the reason why I find this article fascinating is that Scott Clark also chairs his seven voice of the customer matrix. And I must confess, Roger, in there, I learned lots of new things. So if I was to even give you a reason to read the articles, not to be reminded of the obvious stuff, but those seven matrix are just staggering and very, very informative. But very quickly, what can you do with that data, with that feedback from the customers? Well, to begin with, of course, you can adjust products and services. You can make design changes. You can adjust, as we saw in the news, uh, price point. You can even announce new product launches informed by the customer. No, no need to suggest you can vastly improve customer service, but I would suggest you would implement internal new training programs. And I think that's really quite important and sometimes even um, allow your employees to take part in that. You're going to improve sales, whether you're going to automate things, whether you're going to make it a better experience at the checkout, both in person or virtual, perhaps even finding new friction areas that were not known to you because, of course, you're the very architect of that sales process. You're going to improve customer communication. You're going to improve your websites. You're going to make the navigation easier. You might even simply increase the font size because someone told you about it. You're going to de develop potentially new apps and make them better. And of course, she would be able to improve your marketing by shifting the tone, maybe the branding, maybe change the frequency and optimize timings. And so it goes on. And, and that's what, exactly what I was going to say to you, Roger, is that we talk about it, but this article tells you how to do it. This is, this is so good. I mean, how many times do you read articles or watch videos or listen to podcasts about marketing and never hear the word customer? It staggers me still that companies can forget about the customer. Everything, when it comes to marketing, starts with the customer. And as you say, that deep, almost obsessive understanding of the customer. And I guess, you know, to, to carry on the theme that started in the news about brands repositioning after the pandemic, you know, we're seeing a lot of companies struggling at the moment to provide decent customer service, especially the travel companies, the airlines in particular. And that's because they haven't been able to recruit the staff back, but they're still trying to provide the level of service and the frequency that they were doing before the pandemic. And it's just not possible. Um, and, and that just shows how absolutely important the customer experience is 
And you can't provide a decent customer experience. You actually can't provide decent marketing unless you listen to the voice of the customer. Now, and you know, recently I've had a conversation with my own customers where we have actually come to the conclusion that we've been asking customers a lot less. Somehow, you know, with this kind of false impression that because of the data you can derive from social media and other online activities, you know enough. And actually, with the thinking, you know what, maybe we should go back to what we used to do in the 90s and 2000s, where we used to communicate a lot more with our customer and with respect. Um, once a year service and via email is not what we're talking about. That is not what Scott Clark, Clark, Clark sorry, is talking about. He's talking about really making it a part of the DNA of your organization. And it absolutely should be part of the DNA of all customer-facing organizations. So, Pascal, let me talk to you about our friend Elon Musk again. Um, <laughs> okay. Now, this article that I found in Inc. magazine, written by Kelly Main, has the heading, Elon Musk used the three C's rule to give Tesla staff an ultimatum, and it's a crucial lesson in leadership. Now, you probably saw that this tweeted out. Um, Elon Musk is 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 quite a controversial figure, isn't he? I mean, is, is he buying? Is he buying Twitter? Isn't he buying Twitter? Yes. I don't know. We 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 did a whole um, news item part of the show a few episodes ago talking about him buying Twitter, and now it would appear that maybe he isn't going to buy. It, but that's not this, what this is about. What this is about is an email that he sent to his staff and the heading of the email was to be perfectly clear or to be totally clear. That was the heading, and basically saying. You're not working from home anymore. Absolutely stopped. You either work in the office, in the factory, in the building, or you don't work for me at all. And actually, when I read that, I thought, well, Elon, it's your company and you're a billionaire and you're absolutely right to do whatever you want for your company. And that is absolutely your right. But I would not like to be working for you, sending an email as terse and as, uh, uh, you know, so quite arrogant as that. But what what uh, Kelly does here is she actually puts that email that he sent to his staff into the context of how this guy makes his decisions. And as she, as I intimated in the heading, she uses this three C's rule. And the first C is the choices that he makes are always based upon results always based upon results. So he's made this decision because he's seen the financials for his company start to dip during the pandemic when people weren't working in the factory. And he's obviously seen a correlation between this. And he's got the ability to detach himself totally from the emotion involved in making these decisions. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying, and neither is Kelly, that that's a good thing. She's just talking about in this in the context of how Elon Musk works so the choice for him is absolutely and utterly obvious people have got to come back to work in the office in the factories because it isn't working when they're working from home and nothing else matters and he, and he removes all emotion and all of the debate from the issue the second thing is the conviction the confidence and once he's made that decision, that's it. He has the confidence to follow it through. And I suppose it is a benefit of leadership to be confident and to have that conviction. But when I'm sitting there thinking is, how long does it take you to cross the line and become sort of Putin or, or Trump or something like that? So there has to be a fine line. But again, it's just demonstrating how Elon Musk works. And the third C is communication 
absolute and utter clarity of communication. And let's face it, the heading of his email that he sent to his staff said it all, to be totally clear. You're not working from home anymore. You come into the factory or the office or you don't work for me. End of story. No ambiguity, no ifs and buts, no caveats, no maybes, no exemptions to the rule. Absolutely and utterly clear. Now, you might agree with it, you might disagree with it, but from Elon Musk's point of view, that's how he rolls. And I guess you can sit here and think, actually... You know, those three C's, you can apply them. You make your choices based upon results, then have the conviction and the confidence to follow them through and communicate totally clear. Now, I quite like the model. I'm just still not convinced whether I like the result that Elon Musk uh, effectively came to. There is something comforting, you know, as we're deliberating, and I'm sure viewers and listeners are reflecting on that, which is if the choice that was made is data-based, and the data is reliable. And I think that's where you need to be very, very careful. And, and of course, I'm, I'm thinking, which part of the business is he talking about? Because I'm sure uh, with respect, if you're not part of the production line, if you're not part of the, the R&D department and so on, you can work remotely. Um, so if the data is, is reliable, and therefore to protect the company's future and its reputation, the, 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 the option is as follows. Um, yeah, sure. Um, I, I've seen you know people like that who are very, very data-driven when it comes to the decision-making, but they're not doing the other two that you mentioned. Mm. And that's, that's, that's the problem where they, they, they see the data, they use their expertise and experience to reach a conclusion with the manner which is, is being communicated. And also the manner which sometimes they, they could start to waver means that the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And for me, what's missing from this is perhaps a, a fourth C, and I, and I won't be able to think of what the fourth C would be. Maybe it's compassion, a C for compassion or, or something along those lines. I mean, it's all very well to say that Elon Musk manages to separate the emotion from the, the results and from the facts, but I don't think you can do that when you're dealing with people. Well, I mean, well, the quality of uh, leadership is, um, you know, you know, I've seen it in in articles, podcasts, and videos, and, and TED talks time and time again. That emotional intelligence. So, I mean, unless you know, I'm very, very much like you. Unless I can see for myself the item that was sent to, to the Telsa staff, I'm not going to, you know, kind of judge in any ways. I want to read it for myself. Um, but yeah, it's 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 kind of interesting. You're right, which is you know two things. The, the figure that is Elon Musk, you know, it's so so visible. Can you do anything without the press knowing about it and all the staff leaking it as well? Yeah. And secondly, the work that they do, which is about space exploration, is it actually a different environment altogether? And he has to make that kind of decisions, uh, which is perhaps not as um, well, if you were Pret-a-Manger or any other brand we mentioned in, in the news, maybe actually you, you can afford not to make such a kind of clear decisions. Yeah, absolutely. So Elon Musk is one of the most tech-enabled people in the world. His business is pioneering electric cars, space travel, as you say. So he gives us a fabulous segue into the next part of the show, which is, of course, marketing, tech, and apps. Well, Pascal, what technical marvels are you bringing onto the show this week? 
This week's about social media and getting busier and busier uh, with regard to your activities online. Now, the context is we had only two days ago, the time of recording this, an announcement from LinkedIn that finally they are launching the LinkedIn All Your Rooms, often referred to as the Clubhouse clone by by the media. Yeah. And my customers are getting excited. Um, just you know, very very quickly, if you um, change your profile to creator mode, uh, you, you'll have it in addition to live streaming and so on and so forth. So oddly, for, for the first time, LinkedIn is not the last one to launch a few things because we are still waiting for the Facebook audio rooms. But the context, therefore, is that many of us, uh, many of our customers and beyond, are going to get even busier on social media. By extension, maybe content creation. So in the realms of SEO and so on and so forth. Then I was talking recently to a recent guest I had on, on the content marketing studio, Matthew Moore, who works in PR and online reputation management. And I was talking about this idea of tracking and reporting. I say it's becoming so multifaceted and it's getting so much busier that sometimes people say to me, I spend more time tracking reporting than doing anything else. And there's a complete disconnect here. Is there a way that we can report back either internally or indeed externally to the board of directors or to a customer that would make life easier? So I asked Matthew, the PR professional, what do you use for you know your profession? And very, very kindly, you shared two options, which are kind of semi-automated reporting system, but the reports, they are absolutely glorious. They look like magazines that you'll want to read, which I think is very, very important. You know, we, we have this kind of very visually-led experience online, but have you noticed, Roger, by the moment you get to reporting, you're into the world of Excel and Google Sheets, and the whole thing just falls apart. So why don't you treat yourself eternally or even your clients with a very visual storytelling of the month that was or the quarter that was? So the first company uh, that uh, he mentioned to him is called Released. Um, released spelled without an E at the end, because, of course, as you know, the rule is, Roger, if it's an app, you can't spell properly. Yeah. So Released.com uh, is kind of this automatically um, creating reports. You can drag and drop uh, your posts from social media. You can link to blogs and so on. It's all very, very visual. And very, very fast, you can create, like I said, this online magazine. And you can put the stats, you can you know highlight elements, you can put summaries and so on. And it's almost like a Canva Plus experience, which I thought was really, really impressive. There is, and the other thing as well, which is lovely about um, released.com, the other one is, um, one is UK-based, which I think is always nice to support a UK, a UK business. So released with an E at the end is option number one. The second option is called coverage book. So your PR coverage put into, into a book. And these are, once again, beautifully designed reports. But what they do in this one as well, which is lovely, is they compare your performance with industry average. They add that automatically. They also link to a well-known kind of website, like a similar web and Alexa and so on, just to give you a sense of the trajectory and how well you're doing. What is nice about those reports, they can be shared as a PDF, they can be shared as a web page, so your customers or your team, your marketing team, your sales team, your customer experience team can also um, look at it on mobile phones. And the idea being that because you spend less time in a report creation, back to you know Scott Clark's um, advice, you can spend more time in analyzing the data and making good decisions. Indeed. I mean, I'm a massive fan of PR, as you know, Pascal. It's always been one of my favorite parts of the marketing mix. And, you know, I'm absolutely intrigued to go and have a look at, particularly release. That sounds really interesting to me. 
Now, you always are my go-to for tech and latest release in the world of hardware. So what have we got for us this week? Well, it's about Apple this week. And I actually had to include this one, Pascal, because I was actually really surprised about it. Now, we've talked about on the show many times about apps and gizmos that you can use to turn your ca- your phone, your mobile phone, into a webcam. I mean, let's face it, most mobile phones these days have got great cameras on them, 4K at least, um, and superior to many of the uh, actual webcams that are either built into PC um, or, or laptops or, or MacBooks. Um, and it's staggering that Apple have never thought themselves to create something within their own infrastructure that allows the iPhone to become a webcam. Um, and in fact, until I saw this article, I just assumed that they would have done something, but they haven't. So they've allowed all these other companies like um, Camlink and 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 we've we've talked about eCam and, and all of that sort of thing, who've created their own apps to turn iPhones and, and admittedly other smartphones into webcams. Finally, Apple have done it. So in the next iteration of uh, MacBooks and everything, the MacBook's going to have a clip on the top that conveniently allows you to put the phone in, either in a portrait or a landscape uh, orientation. And you can either use the built-in webcam on the MacBook or you can use your iPhone for a far, far, far better experience. But I included that purely from the point of view is, how did they not think of it before? How did they allow all these other companies to go out there and create all of these apps first? I thought it was quite, quite interesting. The second thing, and again, we sort of touched on this a few shows ago, the nightmare it is of remembering passwords. And how many times do you go and log into a website that you haven't logged into for a while? And for whatever reason, you've cleared the cache or whatever, your, your password hasn't been saved. You can't remember what it was. And you have to go through that rigmarole of, changing the password and then they they now ping you on your phone a separate link that you've got to go in and change blah 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 well apparently again in the next next iterations of ios which is going to be ios 16 apple are really upping the game here with their alternatives to passwords and they're going to be called pass keys and it's not totally clear how it's going to work but it would appear to me that they've come up with something which is going to be a lot easier for people to use and will try to eliminate a lot of that messing about that we have. Whether that's actually going to transfer across to different uh, um, areas like PCs and that sort of thing, I imagine not. It will probably just be within the Apple ecosphere. So MacBooks, iPads, iPhones, that sort of thing. But at least it's a step forward in saving us from the nightmare of having to remember all these passwords. Yeah, not two major steps forward. I mean, the, the last one, I wonder if this can be a bit like, you know, the uh, lastpass.com, this idea of, you know, you, you create one for all mm. the other different passwords and it's kind of locked uh, away. But the one about the webcam, I agree with you. I mean, the one grumble that all MacBook owners and beyond have is that the webcam is rubbish. Mm. You think, well, I'm going to how does that work when your phones are so powerful? But mm. the idea of not having to download an app on your phone and download an app on your laptop so that the two can talk to each other to be able to use a mobile phone as a webcam. And when you think that, you know, the, the last iPhone, are we on number 13 now, would you say? Yes. I, um, yeah. Is um, more expensive than my first car. You, know? <laughs> you kind of want, <laughs> you want things to, 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 to do well for you. And, and yeah, I think that's wonderful news. Well done. 
Great stuff. And Pascal, as we always say on the show, all of this fabulous technology that we take for granted nowadays often has its root in the past. So let's fire up the flux capacitor, set the controls of the TARDIS, and let's head back in time for this week in history. In 1919, Captain John Alcock and Lieutenant Arthur W. Brown successfully completed the first non-stop transatlantic airplane flight. They flew from Newfoundland to Clifton Island in 16 hours and 12 minutes in a Vickers Mimi. In 1934, Leonard Kleinrock is born in New York. 27 years later, he would create the initial idea for ARPANET, the precursor to the internet in his first paper entitled Information Flow in Large Communication Nets. Wow. Well, in 1978, the film Grease, starring John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John, opens across the US and Canada. Based on the 1971 stage musical, it remained the highest grossing live action musical until 2012, when it was overtaken by Les Miserables. And in 1984, Tetris becomes the most popular puzzle game video game of all time originally invented by a soviet engineer alexander paginov it i don't think i pronounced that correct apologies alexi its success was nearly stopped by numerous legal battles to settle who had the rightful licenses i loved tetris i absolutely loved tetris i had a a, a, a a color game boy so it wasn't the very first game boy but i had a color game boy and i think i wore tetris out if that was even possible i wore it out <laughs> well um i think somebody did the test is it possible to complete the game and and the answer is no and actually the game will always win eventually because you know, you make that one mistake and you know but um what what again i think i must have played every single iteration from the green monochrome screen of my first pc all the way to probably the online version you can get nowadays yeah I, it's such a good game and as you say beautifully simple and just it, it endures because as you say it's a game without end but it's in it's it it's not one that you can really tire of it's always one you can pick up and enjoy but i didn't know anything about this legal battle pascal so tell me a bit about that oh that's a typical story of entrepreneurs <laughs> and inventors who don't have let's call it a, a commercial acumen you know they, they, they don't have a sense of being ripped off because you know, they wouldn't rip uh, anybody else off themselves so alexi created this really as part of a work at the university in the uh, ussr at the time and really suddenly i think the a copy a um found its way into hungary and then suddenly from there, uh, the world, you know, over got copied. It was copied in the US, it was copied in France and Italy. And every kind of major gaming uh, company bought the right from the wrong person, thinking, <laughs> well, it must come from this French guy. It must come from this Dutch guy because, you know, Tetris, nobody knew. And I think that must be to do with the Cold War and obviously lack of communication. Nobody knew really that Alexei Pajitnov was the inventor. So, of course, little by little, he realizes what has been happening. He kind of gets involved with the um, Russian government who start to claim back the rights. It took forever. It took forever for this to happen. And um, happily, though, for Alexei, the Russian government actually gave him the rights back 
Nah. That's quite incredible. And he was able to then commercialize properly much, much later on in his life with one um, main organization. But even people like Sony and Sega and all the others got taken into this court battle. My goodness. Just goes to show, doesn't it? Just goes to show. Now, I just wanted to mention very briefly um, Alcock and Brown, first transatlantic flight. You know, I, I often use those flight apps, um, you know, to, to to flight tracker to see the what, oh, what that's an easy jet flight flying over the house where's that going and you oh it's come from stansted oh that one's come from uh nantes or oh, that one's come mm. from uh, uh barcelona but one of the things i think is absolutely incredible when you use one of those apps is that the sort of flood of planes going over the atlantic in both directions every day from all the major cities so london you've got all those ba flights and american airlines flights going from paris you've got all those air france flights from berlin and munich you've got all those lufthansa flights piling across the uh, the atlantic and back in 1919 these guys did it for the first time. I mean, that's just incredible. And it took them 16 hours. What's the the average transatlantic flight time now from, say, London to New York is around seven hours going to New York, probably about six hours coming back. And, of course, we managed to get that down to about three hours when we had Concorde. Sadly, we don't have Concorde anymore. So I really do think that this is one of those fabulous examples of why we love this week in history so much these guys did that transatlantic flight for the first time and now look every day how many planes are doing that same journey i think it's fab it must have been so nerve-wracking because mm. you know to spend that much time in the air so there was no stops i mean you can't stop clearly um i can only hazard a guess as to the amount of uh, you know fuel that they have to transport with them to be able to reach the other side and the number of calculations and, and maybe uh trials uh, it's really quite something and, and i think we need to know more about those individuals which is what this segment i would agree with you is very important very very quickly uh, about leonard klein rock uh -huh. at the age of 27 pretty much came up with the idea of the internet I don't recall what I was doing when I was 27, Roger, but I'm pretty sure I was not as clever as this. No, absolutely not. I think I was working for an insurance company at the time. <laughs> that says it all, really, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, as always, Pascal, we owe such a debt of gratitude to these people who worked so hard in the past to give us what we now have in the present. But talking about the present, let's come back to it. Let's come back to the present. It's time to give some shout outs for some creators. Okay, Pascal, who are you giving a shout out to this week? Well, this week is again for you, Roger, but of course, also for you as a listener. So I don't think I ever mentioned to you a gentleman called Scott Myers, a screenwriter, speaker, trainer, and author of The Protagonist's Journey, is also the kind of author and host of this incredible blog called Go Into the Story. So the mm. hint is Scott Myers ah. is all about storytelling, screenwriting, and of course, that kind of um, character arc and so on. And... I was thinking, yeah, I don't think I've mentioned Scott to Roger. You love storytelling and you love character, character development in your, in your own right. And I've been following Scott Nye's primarily on Twitter, it would seem forever. And no matter how much I sometimes think that I pretty much covered all angles about screenwriting and, and heroes' journeys and characters and so on, Scott will always surprise me with a new angle, with a new perspective and a new hook. 
so he perhaps doesn't realize that because of course as is often the case you know people consume the content but don't always necessarily let you know so scott myers this is a long long overdue a shout out thank you for the incredible knowledge you share but also how you deliver through you know i mean if you go on this website and go to the story roger you could even download um public domain uh, scripts but we're talking about recent blockbusters as much as you know an older one you've got countless articles that can really help you understand storytelling and it's got a master class and and the, the, the articles as well and it's probably actually one of those many unsung heroes who've had a positive impact on someone's career as a filmmaker or maybe indeed on someone's career as a content creator or marketer so go check it out Funnily enough, I was just looking at some storytelling books yesterday because I have a subscription to Audible, uh, which I sometimes forget I've got, and therefore the sort of the, the the tickets build up, and I've oh I need to buy a book. So I I was looking at some storytelling books yesterday, but I'm going to dive straight into that website and have a look because I need to catch up on what Scott Myers has been doing. Now, Pascal, you know, over the last few weeks or so, I've been having a bit of a rant about Web three, the metaverse. NFTs. In fact, we've been having a rant about NFTs for a lot longer than the last few weeks. And honestly, I have, you know, I've been fighting back against complex language and gobbledygook and jargon and techno babble in marketing pretty much for my entire career. And I've never seen language as convoluted and complicated and stupid as I'm seeing when people are talking about Web3, Metaverse, NFTs, blockchain, Bitcoin, all of that, cryptocurrencies, malarkey. And I even did a Marketing Made Simple video a week or so ago on this very subject, the fact that these this industry is really going to have to double down on starting talking in plain language. Otherwise, they're never going to actually engage with real customers as opposed to just showing off to other people who work in the Web3, Metaverse, NFT uh, industry. If you want somebody who talks about this subject absolutely as it is, a guy called Theo Priestley. Now, I have mentioned Theo on the show before because he wrote a book about the future of um, technology, uh, but he's recently really doubled down on trying to help people to understand how Web3 is going to work, how the metaverse probably should work, rather than listening to all the BS that is being talked about out there about Web3. So if you want to look at Theo on LinkedIn, I'm including the link in the show notes. Uh, now, Theo does run a company which is looking at, it's called uh, Metanomic, and it's looking at creating the ec economics of the metaverse. And he's, it's actually quite fascinating. But what I do like is his no-nonsense posts, which actually tell Web3 as it actually is, rather than uh, sort of sucking up to the bullshitters. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much for that. Because I think, you know, I've said it, you know, it is the role of the marketer and the business owner to keep, you know, oneself informed, not to just dismiss it offhand. But you've got to be met halfway by the, those who have the information and the knowledge and language is, is where it all begins for me. Absolutely right. Simplicity of language has always got to be the starting point because if the language you use isn't simple, your products won't be simple, your processes won't be simple. I know that I'm a stuck record on this, Pascal, but I will carry on saying it until the bitter end. Okay, we mentioned earlier that we were going to be talking about 
the fifth element in film marketing. And we have arrived at that point in the show. So, Pascal, let's dive into it. Let's move on to film marketing. Well, Pascal, as you said earlier, we are fast approaching the 25th anniversary of The Fifth Element. And as I also said earlier on, I haven't actually seen this film until last night. I thought I had, but when I watched it last night, it didn't bring back any memories at all. So I obviously didn't see it. And here's another interesting snippet as well. My wife has seen it. Mrs. E, Trisha, has seen Fifth Element. I'm not sure how that happened. I think she must have watched it when I was away on a on a trip in the past or something like that. So, exciting stuff. Let's watch the trailer. Okay, Pascal, you tell me what your uh, thoughts are on Fifth Element, and then I'll tell you what I thought of it as a first-time watcher. I'll be honest with you, this is a very important movie to me. Um, 1997, I was there. I went three times <laughs> at the cinema to go and see this film. Once in Newcastle with, um, you know, Denise wasn't my wife then, but, you know, the twice in New- in London with um, colleagues and so on. And th- there was a combination of things. There was once this... Uh, feeling that this is going to be fun to watch. I mean, and uh, in, in more than once, clearly. But I will confess a sense of national pride because <laughs> French director Luc Besson uh, pulled off quite something. I know that we're going to talk about the marketing in a moment, but it, it, for me, it was almost like he set himself the challenge of what if I was to do a family version, like a fun version of the best of Blade Runner, the best of Metropolis, and maybe the day the earth stood still so that you know younger audience can appreciate a science fiction as a genre. What could it look like? And we got the fifth element. And... I mean, I've been watching it easily, you know, once a year, and I've got my multi-pass. I think that would be <laughs> super green, and I can't wait to hear what you've got to say. Well, I really enjoyed it. I thought the visuals were stunning. 
Uh, I thought it was the, the the visuals are also a little bit goofy as well. I mean, the silly aliens at the start, the gigantic aliens with these gigantic bodies, and then these funny little heads that sort of wobble from side to side. Uh, fabulous visuals, great color palette. I really enjoyed the story. This whole idea of the um, the, the, the the four stones and the fifth element being the, the the thing that binds them all together. And I was getting a very very strong Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy vibe from this you know a little bit off the wall uh i I, some of the humor didn't land with me i thought some of it was a bit okay was that supposed to be funny don't think it was but there was there was things that i thought about there was the, the scene right at the start where the aliens land in ancient egypt and you know there's this great big scene where it builds up to them coming back in 300 years and rescuing the world and then they do come back in 300 years and then literally just get blown up by these other aliens over here i think oh that's a very hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy sort of thing that's exactly what douglas adams would have done so yeah i i really enjoyed it and i thought the story was great i thought the um, visuals were great bruce willis is always one of my favourites. I mean, I extended, expected him to say yippee mother <laughs> at some point <laughs> in the film, which he didn't. And um, yeah, yeah, absolutely great. But the, I don't know, the, the tone to me was a little bit off and I can't, I can't really quite describe maybe some of the humour just didn't, didn't hit me. Uh, it just, I didn't really know whether it was trying to be a comedy or it was trying to be a bit too clever for its own good, but that was the only real sort of, uh, downside for me. But, you know, apart from that great film, enjoyed it. Absolutely. And if like you, you are, you know, part of the, the strange, uh, you know, uh, people who have not seen the fifth element like Roger, right. <laughs> we can agree that you're in for a treat. I mean, gather around family, friends, and and you're going to have a, a right giggle through. Because I think what what was interesting is whilst the world had been you know kind of crafted very 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 carefully. To your point, I don't think the actors and the directors took it too seriously or themselves too seriously. And and from what I could read, both in the French and international press, Luc Besson kept, you know, the the, the kind of the humor and, and the, the tone by they light throughout. I mean, literally to the point where people like Bruce Willis and Chris Tucker said, I have no clue what's going on, but I'm having, <laughs> I'm having a wonderful time. <laughs> so let's have a look at the marketing, Pascal. What did you dig out? Because you, you've done the research for this week. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, yeah, thank you, because as you know, it's a special movie for me. And, and I couldn't quite believe that 25 years I've gone past it. No, and you and I've mentioned on occasion anniversaries of movies, but sometime we were not around at all when yeah. it, all, it all began. But here I am thinking, yes, 97, I was around. And 97 was actually a tough year for the film release point of view because we were spoiled. I mean, you know, we had the new Jeb Spawn, we had the Star Wars Special Edition, there was Titanic, I mean, you name it. What, what a busy year. Yeah, but in terms of marketing strategy, I kind of looked at four key elements and maybe one additional one, which is probably unplanned, and one could go as far as saying unwelcome elements. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. if we start with, I suppose, naturally, the teaser campaign. And in 97, the first thing people heard about with regard to the fifth element was just through visual statements. And for you, Roger, and obviously for our audience uh, would have to use a theater of the mind, but we have the poster, which is essentially um, space. You can just tell, you know, from the, the kind of uh, the stars and five vertical lines, all kind of full of little sparks and, and so on. And what is interesting 
thing, the one, the vertical line in the middle is a bit longer than the other four. And what is interesting is this is quite enigmatic. And until such time you see the movie till the end, you will not know what those five vertical lines are. But we have the beginning of a teaser campaign here, three images. Yeah, and again, it's very, very simple, isn't it? Really simple. And the wording as well, it must be found. The fifth element, summer 1997. Dead easy, dead simple. That's simple, and yet creates already the word of mouth and the reaction. Um, so quick question for you, Ashley. I'm intrigued. In the 90s and 2000s, were you aware of Luc Besson and his work? I have to say, probably not. I mean, looking back at his, you know, his back catalogue, The Last Battle, possibly remember that. Uh, I definitely remember Nikita. I think Nikita's mm -hmm. probably the one that stands out for me the most. That was about, wasn't that about a female assassin, I think, uh, maybe. Correct, But, yeah. but uh, yeah, the other ones I'm not sure about, to be perfectly honest. So the, the first teaser poster is pure graphics, you know, the, the five vertical lines. Then the second teaser is a phrase. It must be found with, with the letter S in a word, in a word sorry, must uh, turn into five. Yeah, yeah. I seem to remember that this could be false memory on my part, a third one, which was um, what is the fifth element, mm. question mark, but mm. maybe it's something that I just imagined. And then we have, of course, teaser trailers, and those are very, very clever. And they were featured at the cinema. One of them asked to actually when I went to see the special edition Star Wars uh, movie, where you have all four elements being count, counted down um, using different calligraphy. And then number five turns into this kind of a very enigmatic symbol. And then we have another one, which is all more to, to do with the title reveal. So again, not much is being, being shared with the audience until we get to the official trailer that mm. some of you watched and listened to. But here's the thing about this official trailer, as you know, all of us have realized, there is no dialogue whatsoever. Uh -huh. And it's interesting, isn't it, as well, because um, um, the the character of the fifth element, the sort of the, the thing that binds it all together, she starts off the film talking gibberish. Uh -huh. uh, although Luke, uh, apparently, um, I, I did read that Luke Besson had actually created in a proper language for her to speak and he actually noted down all the different words so he did have it in mind it's a bit like Klingon I guess somebody actually went to the trouble <laughs> yes. of actually writing it all down uh, so so it's interesting that language f plays quite an important part of the story and yet in the trailer there was no dialogue at all which I think could be perceived as a smart move for promotion in non-English speaking territories, mm, you know, mm. so, and you just allow the visuals and the world, you know, we will know once you've seen the movie that you're transported into the 23rd century and you've got all the characters and all the stars. I mean, Sonny Brussels will be known internationally, Gary Ullman. I think Mila Jozovic will have been known to some, but not all. And um, what a tour de force, you know, when she, she essentially reveals the character of Lilu. And then following, of course, the, um, the the official trailer, you have the official poster, which is the one that I remember the most. And what we have here really is um, showcasing the urban world, really, which mm. is kind of interesting. We're back with the five vertical lines. And actually, uh, you know, I remember this, the, um, the a character is seen to be right in the center of that you know, longer vertical line and mm. being the fifth element, of course. So that teaser uh, campaign really got um, you know, the, the kind of the media and informal uh, media as well talking. Yeah, absolutely. 
The second um, element, if I may use the term, of the marketing campaign is, of course, PR. I mean, this is 97, Roger, way, way, way before the internet that we know today. <laughs> so you have to use, you know, radio, TV, and newspapers, and they had so many hooks to choose from. So, for example, they could capitalize on the origin story of the fifth element. And mm-hmm. the person was on TV, you know, across territories and radio and more, who revealed that actually this has been a story that you wrote as a novel at the age of 15 <laughs> by the talented guy and it was only 10 years later when he began to you know work in film they thought oh, actually maybe i could make the fifth element um a film his challenge was that because he'd been tinkering and adding more he had a 400 pages manuscript <laughs> And he had to use the help of his um, partner, Mark Kamen, to take it down to a more sensible size. And, you know, the story goes that he'd, he'd written really The Fifth Element because he was bored uh, one summer. And actually, the character in the original Fifth Element was him trying to escape, you know, the boredom of his world and discovering, obviously, and being taken to an adventure. And he was stuck about the fifth element until he was helping his younger sister complete homework and discovered that Plato, um, a Greek philosopher, had actually come up with the idea of the four elements of water, earth, fire, and air, and the fifth element being the human being. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, what I what is interesting, some of the visuals that you've dug out here, is that he the visual design of the film was inspired by effectively comic book artists. Yeah, they, the the two, uh, Jean Mobius, Giraud, and Jean-Claude Mézière, are very, very famous in, in France and the rest of, of mainland Europe. Uh, the culture of graphic novels is, is quite something. I mean, I want you to imagine 2000, 2000 AD times a thousand in terms of the <laughs> impact uh, of the culture. It's not dissimilar to what Peter Jackson would do years later with Lord of the Rings using the services of Alan Lee and John Howe you know, the original illustrators of um, Tolkien to bring that in. And so, yeah, the second hook they could have used in addition to, to the original story was the world of the fifth element. And talking about production, uh, I put some visuals for you in the show notes so you could see their style and, and their work. But talking production, the costumes have been much talked about in the press from 97 onwards because, of course, you had the uh, fashion designer Jean-Paul Gaultier working on it. And and this is one of the areas where, to me, it looked a bit Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I mean, <laughs> I was thinking about the silly robots at the start, gigantic robots with funny little heads. And then the policemen, the policemen have the most ridiculous um, uniforms, which were so bulky and their helmets would, would have been so heavy that they wouldn't even have been able to walk in a straight line with them. But it was all part of the of the visual image of the film and it works but when you actually look at it you think this is a bit this is a bit ridiculous you know you would never design a uniform like that no, absolutely. And, and interestingly, the, the, the uniform of the police officers that you saw yesterday for the first time, <laughs> the, they are part of a graphic novel uh, yeah. from Mobius. So for you know people like me, we were just cheering, thinking, oh my God, you know, I'm seeing some of the things <laughs> I've read as a child on the big screen. Um, Jean-Paul Gaultier is famous to have said that he will never work on a film like this ever again because <laughs> he was exhausted. He said, I pr- pretty much didn't sleep for six months. But he even got himself in a position where, do you remember the, the big scene when they arrive at the um, 
holiday destination yeah. and there's like a big banquet. No, there's the opera and everything else. He designed up to 900 costumes. Oh, and my he goodness. personally personally checked all of them uh, every morning. My goodness. I mean, yeah, the, the costumes were pretty impressive. And the, the, the last scene, last few scenes, which was sat when the, the blue alien was singing, the opera yeah. singer, that was quite special. I thought that they, and the, the costumes on display there were, were really impressive. So the other hook that they could use and have used actually for the PR machine was the music, the fifth mm. element, mm. Com uh, with composed French composer Eric Serra. It will be known to you with Nikita, but also Goldeneye. Yeah. Remember Goldeneye, yeah. the, the music, and he's got a very unique style. If um, viewers and listeners know about him, he, he can combine classical instruments with modern sounds, and sometimes he almost sounds like somebody's banging on on metal tubes and so on. <laughs> and he brings all, all, all this together very very neatly. Yeah, I have, there was a few parts during the film. There was there was one I thought. Oh, Oh, that music sounds a bit like Walking on the Moon by the Police. Uh, yeah. I'm sure it was a complete coincidence. Well, oh, oh, but maybe he just got inspiration from, from songs like that. When we're talking about Hooks of the PR Machine, I mean, one that, of course, the press went for is the budget. Mm. In 1997, um, this cost roughly 90 million, mm. and this was the most expensive European films ever made at the time. And he kind of kept uh, that uh, badge of honor for quite some time. It also remained the highest grossing French film in the international market for quite some time until actually a comedy called The um, The Then to Shadow the Intouchables in 2011. So, uh, in terms of its legacy and its impact in popular culture, uh, it, it is quite something and then of course as a hook they've got to use the stars of the fifth element yeah bruce willis i mean as i say um he will always be john mcclain but maybe this is the first film and the only film that not only has he still got hair but it's blonde hair as opposed to dark hair which yeah. i always associate with bruce willis now, if you wouldn't mind looking at the, the show notes, I've prepared a few visuals for you. I put just for our, uh, our viewers and listeners who want to see them. So you, you know what Bruce Willis looked like, obviously, um, in The Fifth Element. I've put a picture for you of Luc Besson at the premiere of um, you know, The Fifth Element at Cannes Film Festival. Would you say that there is a bit of a resemblance between Luc Besson's hairdo and, and um, what he's wearing and <laughs> Corbin Dallas? Yeah, I think maybe he was trying to uh, try trying to uh, layer himself over over the top of Bruce's uh, persona. There, <laughs> I remember that the Fifth Element was written as a story about Luc Besson's himself, bored on Earth, leaving uh, to a, you know, a much better place. So I think there's a link there. Um, so yes, um, you know, all of them, you know, Miladjovic, um, Gary Oldman, magazines literally covered them um, extensively. And that led to, you know, really quite a significant um, PR machine, not to mention the layer of advertising for TV spots, radio spots, and so on. But the third element of this marketing campaign is, of course, the premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. Now, this film was, it, it received mixed response, didn't it? Oh, completely. So, you know, the, the premiere uh, took place at the 50th Canton Festival on the 7th of May, which is the fifth month of the year. So you can have wished for a better time to kind of play on the, the number five and, and that kind of things. And people were treated to like um, a massive market where the world of the fifth element was being created. And I suppose uh, Luc Besson, the filmmakers and the investors sat there thinking, 
we, we we've got this. You know, we, we've done the the, uh, the the test screening with the audience. It's going to work well, and actually. Critics in particular were very, very divided. I mean, it's not just mildly divided. There was people who literally hated the movie and others who thought this was amazing. Yeah, I think, um, as, as I say, for, for me, visually, it was stunning. Love the story, love the actors, but the tone of it just didn't land with me sometimes. And maybe it was that, is this trying to be too funny? Is it a comedy? Is it, it's, it wasn't slapstick comedy. As I say, it, it was a little bit off the wall, maybe a bit Hitchhiker's Guide, as I say. And maybe that's what didn't land with with some of the critics. But having said that, they 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 fought back, didn't they? And, and famously, Barry Norman was incredibly disparaging of this film. And yep. basically, Bruce Willis, <laughs> well, he didn't say yippee-ki-yay, uh, yeah, but he did say, who cares what critics think? <laughs> I, I remember what, there was the Barry Norman film review. And I mean, when Bruce Willis said that, I literally cheered and applauded because, <laughs> and then Bruce Willis carried on to say, you know, what we set down to do was a movie to entertain families and to essentially take you away to a different world this summer. And we succeeded. And who cares what critics think? That is the first time I believe I've heard anyone involved in filmmaking to take on the critics. Uh, Luc Besson was a more diplomatic, shall we say. Yeah. Interestingly enough, they've started publishing uh, some of Barry Norman's interviews from the um, uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Barry Norman's reviews, sorry. Uh, so I did go and look, but they haven't published the, um, <laughs> the Fifth one. Element one yet. So we'll, we'll, we'll watch that when it comes out. And the Final kind of element of the campaign where they had some element of control, so four plus the um, critics kind of for reactions, is the home media campaign. And the reason why I put it in there, Roger, is because looking back at media from 98, 99 onwards, there was clearly, clearly um, evidence that people had loved the fifth element and wanted to own a copy, but also people had missed it hearing about uh, from fans like myself. So I've got to see this movie. So <laughs> we had, of course, the VHS, which is what I own, Laserdisc and DVD, in the Christmas 97. So remember, this movie came out in May. It was a summer release. And within no time, which is, again, new for the, for the time period, you, you could buy the fifth element as a present to yourself or a loved one for Christmas. Then a few years later, we have the ultimate edition two DVD uh, box set, which I do own as well. <laughs> that was 2005. And the first Blu-ray came out a year later. So people were a bit annoyed, thinking, well, I just bought the, the DVD. If I'd waited a bit longer, I could have had the Blu-ray. But the Blu-ray release didn't actually go down very well. Really? That's interesting. I, I would have thought that uh, the 4K Ultra HD version would have looked absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, so you had to wait till 2017 for that. But the first Blu-ray came out in 2006, barely months after the DVDs. So hang on, I'm going to have to pay twice now. And when they did do, I hasten to that I didn't, because I'm a bit more sensible than that. When they did do, it was purely a transfer from DVD to Blu-ray. There was no, it wasn't better in terms of images, and it wasn't better in terms of sound, and there was no uh, more special features. The, the complaint was so severe that actually Sony, for the first time, almost recalled the first batch of Blu-rays and released um, a new one a year later. Oh, that's interesting. So what have they got in store for the 25th anniversary? <laughs> so we've had the pleasure of 
going through the anniversary campaign, the 10th anniversary, the 20th anniversary, and the 25th anniversary. And incredibly, bear in mind that the US in particular were very critical and the film critics were very harsh on the fifth element. In the US, uh, starting merely in a couple of weeks' time, they're going to have a uh, the screening of the fifth element in more than 800 cinemas, Roger. Wow. I mean, that, that, uh, that that's incredible, isn't it? And obviously, at the time of the original launch, I mean, Luke Besson, having spent so much time trying to get this film to the screen, must have been a bit disappointed with some of the reactions. But I guess now, 25 years later on, the fact that he's going to be packing out 800 cinemas must be making him feel pretty chuffed with himself, I would have thought. Oh, completely. And, and maybe that's there's a, there's a lesson for all content creators out there. I mean, Sony Pictures have got the rights to the movie now. I've even re-released a teaser trailer where actually they reveal more of the story. It's almost like, remember how much you enjoy Fifth Element? Go back and buy the 4K or go to the cinema. There's even IMDb.com, um, which suggests to me because they are owned by Amazon Prime that we may have a fifth element on Amazon as well very, very soon. But personally, I'd be talking to my local cinema manager to say, can we have a screening of the fifth element? It's the anniversary. <laughs> it's uh, it's very, very, very important. So, listen, I can't thank you enough to agreeing to <laughs> uh, review the marketing fifth element, even though you'd never seen the movie <laughs> until, until last night. And I thought it would be apt to maybe leave the final words to Luc Besson himself. He was interviewed for the 20th anniversary of the movie by um, The Nerdist, which is also more on my go-to um, film news website. And this is what Luc Besson said at the time. It's surprising because at the beginning, when the film opened in the US, the critics were awful. But I think the biggest pleasure for a director is getting to see that 20 years later, your film is still alive and goes from generation to generation. I have seen through the 20 years, 50-year-olds discovering the film for the first time, that's you, Roger, and then giving the DVD to a 12-year-old. I've seen all of that, and it's just amazing. I don't think I can top that in terms of uh, finishing off this section of the show, Pascal, so I won't do that. I shall just finish the show full stop. That was episode 79 of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. And as always, it was absolutely great to talk about all the amazing content, all the amazing marketing, the tech, the apps, and of course, that really interesting film, The Fifth Element. And your enthusiasm for that film is absolutely infectious and boundless as always, Pascal. Thank you everybody so much for listening and watching to Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast. We really do appreciate you watching and listening. And if you've got any feedback for us, if you want to give us any suggestions about what we should review, what we should talk about, any tech that we've missed, let us know. Leave us a comment on the uh, YouTube channel or you can use SpeakPipe to give us your feedback. Pascal, just remind me again, how do people use SpeakPipe? Yes, you go online, speakpipe.com forward slash two gigs and a marketing podcast. Fantastic. So until the next episode, thank you so much once again for watching or listening. Go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. <laughs> <laughs>